Welcome to GMF's Out of Order podcast. I am Christy Govella, Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Dr. Zach Cooper, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and Co-Director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at GMF, and Dr. Garima Mohan, a Fellow in GMF's Asia Program. Today, we're here to discuss the prospects for trilateral security cooperation between the U.S., Japan, and Europe in the Indo-Pacific region. The topic of this podcast originated in conversations at GMF's Japan Trilateral Forum held in July 2021. In recent years, the world's attention has shifted towards the Indo-Pacific. As concerns over the rise of China have intensified, the U.S. and Japan have taken steps to strengthen their alliance, Both countries have released their strategies or visions of the free and open Indo-Pacific, and they've also reached out to other regional partners in different formats, such as the Quad. Interestingly, Europe, too, has paid noticeably more attention to the Indo-Pacific, begging the question of how the U.S., Japan, and Europe might work together on security issues of mutual concern. Karima, you've written about the changes in European thinking towards the Indo-Pacific lately. What's driving these changes, and what kind of security role do you think that European countries might envision for themselves in the Indo-Pacific region? Um, Thank you, Christy, for for having me on. I'll deal with the first part of your question, what are the drivers of this change? Because it has been rather remarkable, because Europe went from um, decidedly not using the term Indo-Pacific to the spate of strategies we've seen over the last one and a half, two years, starting with France, of course, which was an early adopter to Germany, Netherlands, the UK's integrated review, and the EU, which will release its strategy on September 15th, um, so in a few days from now. Uh, what are the drivers of this rather rapid and for me- in many ways unexpected change? I would say three. First, is the um, tensions in the EU-China partnership, which had been building over a long time, but really came to a head with the coronavirus crisis, with the Wolf Warrior diplomacy going into overdrive, left a lot of countries, European countries, that were reluctant to use the term Indo-Pacific, primarily because of China's objections, led to sort of changing their minds a little bit. Second, I think, is that Europe realized that it has a stake in the region. Uh, The Indo-Pacific together constitutes the second largest export destination for for Europe. A majority of its exports transit through the sea lanes of Indian and Pacific Oceans. The EU is also the largest trade and investment partner for a lot of Indo-Pacific economies, even though it's being replaced by China. But there was an understanding that dynamics in the region will have an impact on European prosperity, particularly if supply chains are disrupted or if Europe is sort of replaced as an important economic partner, but they'll also have an impact on European security. And third, I think what is often underestimated is the pressure from regional players on Europe to clarify its stance, because at some point, the political choice of not using the term Indo-Pacific became a statement in itself, because then you're clubbed with countries like China and Russia, who have a problem and are not using Indo-Pacific framing. And therefore, Europe did not quite want to be in that camp. And um, the experiences of Europe with China's rise, 
are sort of mirrored in the Indo-Pacific region as well. So challenges such as, for example, economic coercion, particularly the China-Australia tensions, found a lot of resonance in European capitals. Also on the questions of 5G, disinformation, aggressive diplomacy, there were suddenly lots of topics that Europe had to talk to with partners in India, Japan, and Australia. Um, And so therefore, the parallels or understanding how China behaves as an international actor in the Indo-Pacific has important lessons for Europe, also led to many Europeans deciding, well, let's engage with the region and let's figure out what our approach to the Indo-Pacific will be, particularly because, you know, it is, um, in many ways, it's a strategic imagination uh, is different, like there are different uh, boundaries of the Indo-Pacific, different ways of conceptualizing the region. And so you'll see that in these strategies, it's really an attempt to to define how Europe sees the region, where it starts, it stops, and how it wants to engage, and which particular partners it wants to prioritize, not just putting all its eggs in the China basket, which was um, Europe's Asia policy prior to this. Great. That's very interesting. So in terms of security, do you think that there are certain European countries that envision themselves as particularly involved in the Indo-Pacific region? And what kind of role do you think they see for themselves? So on security, I think it's important to note that security and defense is only one part of Europe's Indo-Pacific strategy and engagement. Um, Its Indo-Pacific strategy largely relies on trade, investment, infrastructure, technology, providing alternatives to Chinese investments in this sector, much less on security and defense. It's also because Europe recognizes the limits of hard power projection. Um, The UK, for example, in its integrated review, really talks about the Euro-Atlantic as the key region. Russia is the primary threat. Um, Similarly, for countries like Germany and as well as the EU, The political will is limited and priorities will always be in its neighborhood. And yet we've seen so much increase in security engagement with the region recently. For example, France has consistently sent ships to the region. It has surveillance frigates in New Caledonia. The UK's carrier strike group is back in the region. A Dutch frigate will be joining. The German frigate Bayern a couple of days ago did a joint exercise with an Indian Navy ship in the Indian Ocean, has begun its voyage through the Indo-Pacific. And while these are small things, I think they're important because it, one, shows coordination within the EU, attempts uh, between different member states to pool resources, which will actually be piloted in another EU program. It's called Integrated Maritime Presence, where basically naval assets of member states, they'll be you know, working with each other under the EU flag. We'll see how this goes because EU um, projects are always sort of, um, yeah, they take different shapes and forms. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But I think this internal coordination is important. Defense diplomacy, countries across the board have stepped up, including two plus two dialogues with Japan. And what is most important from a European perspective, and it's often underestimated in the region otherwise, is the different programs the EU has invested in and is spending millions of euros on capacity building programs in Southeast Asia, cybersecurity resilience, counterterrorism, maritime security, maritime domain awareness, IUU phishing, and they're often put in non-traditional security bracket. But because of China's entry in these spaces, they also have 
um, strategic implications. And therefore, even though it's always put on the side as something small, I think these are the main focal points of any EU security defense engagement in the Indo-Pacific. Zach, how are these changes in Europe viewed in the U.S.? Does Europe have a role to play in the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy? And if so, where do you think it fits in? Well, first, Christy, thanks so much for having me. And Karina, it's great to be here with you. Um, I do think that that Europe has a role to play in the Indo-Pacific strategy from an American perspective. But I think there are two very different views on how active Europe should be. So in my mind, there's a group that is supporting very deep European engagement in Asia. And and the logic for this argument, as we've already talked about, is that the United States needs its allies and partners around the world to be engaged in Asia, in part to shape China's choices, in part to reinforce the rules-based order there. And so I think there is a large group of, of experts who would recommend that European countries be pretty deeply engaged in Asia. And uh, that that is true not just on economic issues and uh, you know, governance issues more broadly, but even to some degree on military issues. I think then there's, there's a second group, however, that's a bit skeptical about the degree to which Europe can change some of the dynamics, especially on the military side. And um, I think you've seen a little bit of this debate come out the last few weeks Uh, Lloyd Austin, when he was in Singapore, made some comments about how he appreciated the British sending uh, some of some of their naval vessels to Europe, but that maybe the Europeans need to make sure that they stay uh, pretty focused in Europe. And I I think that view is going to get a little bit of traction. You know, we're, we're coming out of 20 years in Afghanistan with a lot of our European allies and partners. Um, the reason those allies and partners were in Afghanistan was in part because we had asked them to be there and they had volunteered to show up. Um, but those wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq as well, they did detract to some degree from European attention closer to home. And so we found, you know, that when Russia was pushing into Eastern Europe, uh, that in fact, the Europeans were less prepared than we were hoping they could have been. And part of that was because they were conducting out-of-area operations. So I think the the question here is which one of these two groups is going to win. Uh, as with everything in Washington, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be a little bit of both. I think you will see continued support for European engagement broadly in Asia. But I think you're going to see more of that support for engagement on broad governance issues, on economic issues, and probably a little less on military issues. I think there's going to be a real desire to make sure that NATO in particular stays pretty focused on the challenges related to Russia and doesn't get too distracted trying to operate in small numbers very far away. Not to say that some presence in Asia isn't warranted, but I think a big push for NATO in, into Asia is probably unlikely. Karima, what do you think about this trade-off between Europe's involvement in security issues closer to home and in the Indo-Pacific? You said a little bit about this in your initial comments, but can you say a bit more? Criticism that Europe faces often is either it's doing too much or it's not doing enough. And um, this is true in the case of the Indo-Pacific as well. A lot of regional partners want Europe to play a larger role. And then there's also the criticism that it needs to do more in its neighborhood. And I think um, there really is no danger of 
you sort of you're overstretching or engaging in out-of-area operations in the Indo-Pacific as of now. Because as I mentioned in the UK's case, but also if you look at security and defense debates in Germany and elsewhere, really the question is strategic autonomy, the Russia question, how much can the Europeans rely on the US and the tensions in the transatlantic partnership. It's really focused on um, Europe and its neighborhood. And now, of course, Afghanistan will be um, an important factor as well. On the debates on NATO and the Indo-Pacific, it's not so much about NATO extending in the region, but more about NATO dealing with China within Europe's borders. And uh, there's a lot of clarity about that within NATO circles that um, we can talk about Indo-Pacific, but it's really not about NATO engaging in operations in the Indian Ocean, for example. Um, It's really about building Europe's presence where it already exists. So they're already spending so much money, for example, on Atalanta, on Crimario, which is a maritime domain awareness program in the Indian Ocean, which has now been extended to Southeast Asia. They might extend it to the Pacific Um, really making sure that all of these capacity building, security dialogues, programs they have align, serve European interests and work with the interests of Europe's most important regional partners like Japan, like India, like Australia. So I don't think that at this point the debate really is that Europe should turn and really put all of its resources and assets in the Indo-Pacific. The European assessment is very realistic about what they can and cannot do in the region. It's about making sure the resources they're spending, that's done right, and it has an impact. So Japan, for its part, has welcomed increasing involvement from Europe in the Indo-Pacific region, particularly in some of the areas that you mentioned, Karima, such as maritime security, where Japan has really been deeply concerned by increasing Chinese assertiveness, gray zone activity, and all kinds of other issues. Um, So as you mentioned, we've seen Japan deepen its security cooperation with European countries um, in two plus two meetings with um, information sharing, defense equipment and technology transfer agreements and joint exercises. So how do you think, Karima, that European countries view Japan specifically as a potential partner in Indo-Pacific security cooperation? I think one important thing to say here is that Japan was played a very important role in getting the Europeans on board the Indo-Pacific. It's really a credit to Japanese diplomacy, um, which they've been engaged in for for a long time now in getting the Europeans to understand, first of all, that the idea originated from the region. A lot of Europeans equated it with the Trump administration. And that was also one of the reasons they were reluctant to get on board because of the transatlantic tensions. So Japan played an important role and they had very clear asks of Europeans as well. First of all, burden sharing in the Indian Ocean, uh, legal and technical capacity building in Southeast Asia, and then more signaling on South China Sea issues. And I think on all those three counts, Europe is delivering um, for the EU, as well as its member states, Japan has to be one of the closest value partners in the Indo-Pacific, a very important economic partner, particularly given its role in CPTPP and other economic arrangements. We're not talking about that today, but really for the EU, Japan is perhaps the closest partner they have in the Indo-Pacific right now. And uh, on security and defense, for example, there are joint exercises in the Gulf of Aden. That's interesting. Again, more of an operational experience for European navies, 
um, coordinating and working with Japan and and also India down the line. I think those those things are quite important. Um, the two plus two dialogues you've mentioned, security defense consultations you've mentioned. I think Japan and uh, is therefore quite an important partner. Where I see this going next is to really see beyond these areas. Would Japan see potential working with the EU? Or and Europe, or would they also see well there are limits to a European role? Um, sort of what Zach was mentioning, the debates in the U.S. I wonder if there there is a school of thought in Tokyo as well uh, that believes similarly. And uh, I would like to ask you, Christy, here now that we have the news of um, Prime Minister Suga saying he will not stand for re-election. What impact would that have? I wonder on on Indo-Pacific foreign policy issues particularly since the first Quad in-person leaders summit was scheduled for September, which most likely would be postponed for now. So I would like to hear a little bit on that from you. So as you mentioned, Japan has been a leader in terms of developing and promoting the idea of the Indo-Pacific, first under Prime Minister Abe and then under his successor, Prime Minister Suga, which makes sense because Suga was an integral part of the Abe administration. So now with Suga's announcement that he won't stand for re-election in the LDP party presidential race, that means that we will see a change of leadership in Japan this fall. But regardless of who his successor is, the electoral dominance of the LDP means that we're basically assured to see another member of the LDP in office. And looking at many of the candidates that are under discussion right now, um, they have similar views on the rise of China and other issues in the Indo-Pacific that really underlie Japan's current vision for regional participation. So I think we can anticipate a great deal of continuity in Japanese foreign policy, regardless of who succeeds Suga in office. I think the real question is about the intensity with which Japan can continue pursuing its role in the region, which could be affected by a series of quick turnovers in leadership or the need to focus on domestic coronavirus response, for example. So I don't think we'll see a fundamental shift in direction, but Japan will also have other problems to deal with. And if leadership becomes more unstable, that could potentially inhibit the kind of concerted effort to promote foreign policy that we saw under Prime Minister Abe, who was in office for an unusually long period of time for Japan. But in general, I think we can anticipate that Japan will welcome the same kinds of cooperation with the U.S. and Europe and the Indo-Pacific that we've been seeing. Japan, for its part, is certainly concerned about security issues in Europe, but I think that it welcomes the participation of additional like-minded partners in the Indo-Pacific region, especially in areas like infrastructure investment, where there is a great deal of scope for cooperation because of the strength of each of the trilateral partners. So I think we've already touched upon some of the main areas that are promising for cooperation between the U.S., Japan, and Europe. But, you know, let's delve into that a little bit more. It seems like we've been um, agreeing that the three parties should build on their strengths, you know, and, and go forward in particular areas. But if you had to choose one area that you felt was the most promising, um, what would you say that would be? How about you, Zach? It's a really tough question. I think for me, probably the area that is most important for trilateral cooperation 
is on economic issues and about the basic rules of the international order. You know, I, I think when we think about security, as I said earlier, I think there's a role for Europe, there's a role for NATO and Asia. Um, but the reality is that the U.S. is the one that's going to be more present there along with Japan and others in Asia. Um, when it comes to economics, though, I think all three of those parties are absolutely critical. Um, Japan has played a very active leadership role, as Karima said earlier, on CPTPP, on trying to network uh, global countries together to uphold high standards, trade and economic agreements. I think that's been really critical, but unfortunately Japan can't do this alone, right? And part of what we've seen the last few years is the U.S. basically walking away from a lot of these discussions and just not being part of them, right? So you've seen economic integration go ahead in Asia. Uh, we've seen not just CPTPP, but RCEP, and Japan has been part of both. The United States has been part of neither. And as a result, I think Japan is trying to do everything it can to keep the U.S. actively engaged, but it can't do it on its own. And so it, it can't just focus on regional integration, although that's important. It has to bring in outside players. And that's where I think Europe is going to be critical, right? Um, the U.S. never likes being left behind. It's watching itself get left behind a little bit economically in Asia as, as integration continues. Um, but I think Europe has a pretty key role to play here. And when we start thinking about things like the World Trade Organization and the dispute settlement mechanism, you know, there, all three parties have to be on the same page. Um, and if we're not on the same page, we're going to see the continuation of uh, Chinese pressure using economic coercion campaigns and the inability of the international economic order to respond. So I think the economic domain is the one where I think trilateral cooperation, at least over the next few years, is, is the most promising and maybe the most needed. Yes, I would agree with a lot of what you said, Zach. I think that some of the strongest areas uh, for security cooperation are actually an economic cooperation that has clear implications for security and in setting these kinds of rules for governance that really um, underlie many of the interactions that these countries are having. Um, so I would agree that you know things like um, investment rules, connectivity, capacity building are all you know right for cooperation and should be areas where we move forward. Karima, what do you think? Um, yeah, absolutely agree with both of you. Um, on infrastructure investment and technology, both of these are areas which are economic but have security implications. You know, the debate on Huawei showed us clear national security implications. BRI projects have regional security implications. So I think these are two areas which, of course, we don't think about when we talk of security defense, but definitely would have an impact on regional uh, stability. And there, I think there is a lot of room for trilateral cooperation. Japan, of course, is a leader in infrastructure investment across Southeast Asia, South Asia. And the EU has a lot of money, has a lot of resources that it can pool, which is it is in fact doing. Um, I don't know where the Blue Dot initiative stands right now, particularly under the Biden administration, but those are platforms where there's clear sort of scope for the EU to plug in. Um, also for sort of trilateral cooperation on other projects or coordination at least because it gets very complicated when it comes to infrastructure and you have three different players. 
Um, so I think that's important and also on technology, uh, both in terms of setting the norms, but also capacity, um, key tech players that are in Europe have a role to play in the region. And I'm sure there's um, scope to do more, uh, more conversations to be had. We have the Trade and Tech Council between US and Europe. And I think if they are not talking about what's going on in the Indo-Pacific, then it would be sort of a myopic. And I, I, I do hope that this will be expanded to, to include partners like Japan. So recently we've seen Taiwan in the headlines and, you know, we know that recently the U.S., Japan and Europe have been strengthening ties with Taiwan and have become increasingly willing to mention Taiwan in official statements. Um, Do you expect that that is something we'll see more of in the future? Is this an area where we might see some type of cooperation between the three parties? What do you think, Zach? Boy, it's such a tough question and it's so important. Um, I think there are a lot of open questions on this issue. So. First, I think we have to acknowledge, and I, I say this with all, with great respect for my European friends, that when China thinks about the military challenge of taking Taiwan, Europe is not actually that important to that question. And it's not because the Europeans don't care about Taiwan. It's just because I think the, the main challenge for the Chinese military would really be uh, the ROC military, the United States, and potentially Japan. So I think there are real questions about whether you get more deterrence value out of military-related statements that involve our European allies and partners uh, when it comes to Taiwan. That doesn't mean, however, that there isn't a lot of value in European friends talking more about trying to uh, maintain stability in the strait and uphold Taiwan in certain ways, whether that's international space or trade and economic agreements. So I think there's a lot that Europe can do on Taiwan. I'm just not sure that it's going to be doing a lot of that in terms of military and security activities, Um, both because I'm not sure it would make a huge difference and also because I think a lot of our European friends are going to be very nervous about speaking out too forthrightly on Taiwan. And, you know, I would turn this back on both of you because you have such deep expertise on this, but I I wonder what's going to happen in Japan on this too. So I do think there's been a shift in Japan and that Tokyo is going to keep being more forward-leaning on Taiwan issues. But I think we also have to acknowledge that some of the shift has come about during Kishi's time as Minister of Defense. And it is very possible that that time will end this fall and Kiji has long been one of the strongest supporters, maybe the strongest supporter within the LDP of Taiwan. And so I wonder if we'll see not a reversal um, if he were to step down, but maybe a little bit more quiet uh, conversation in Tokyo about Taiwan. Interested in your views on that. Yes. To pick up on that, it's certainly true that we've heard a number of statements about Taiwan by high-profile politicians such as Kishi, who recently said that the security of Taiwan is directly linked to that of Japan. And then in Japan's most recent defense white paper, we also saw emphasis on the importance of Taiwan. So these developments have sparked a great deal of discussion about whether they signal an actual change in Japan's position. Officially, it's important to note that Japan has not changed its position in terms of making an explicit commitment to defend Taiwan, for example. 
Um, but I agree that these kinds of statements do indicate a shift in the mood in Tokyo among leaders and a willingness to be more vocal. In comparison to the past, this is quite a change from Japan's reluctance to make such statements about Taiwan before out of concerns about upsetting China.、Um, but I think you're right, Zach, that because of its informality, Whether this trend continues depends somewhat on the presence of people who are willing to be forward leaning in positions of power in Japan. So, as we see changes in leadership this fall and over time in the future, we may see changes in at least the volume or perhaps also the tone of conversations in Tokyo about Taiwan, depending on who's in charge. Fundamentally, however, you know, Japan does consider Taiwan to be an important partner, and that's not likely to change. Japan has really strong unofficial ties to Taiwan in terms of trade and investment, and many in Tokyo see Taiwan as quite essential to regional security issues, and that's likely to only become more true as concerns about increasing Chinese assertiveness continue to intensify in Tokyo. So, while we aren't likely to see an official change in terms of Japan's Taiwan policy, it's important to remember the variety of types of ties that Japan has with Taiwan and the opportunities that those may present.、Uh, I think that in these areas, like trade and investment, or like shipments of coronavirus vaccines, for example, there is scope for increased cooperation between Japan and Taiwan, and possibly also opportunities to deepen these trilaterally. Grima, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, since I'm representing the European perspectives here, I, I don't think I have a lot to add.、Um, what Zach said is true. Europeans are very nervous when it comes to Taiwan issues. And we've started seeing individual member states take somewhat stronger positions as they're, the, particularly the member states that are critical of China,、uh, then make statements in favor of Taiwan. We recently saw this in the case of Lithuania. But will we see a concerted European statement? Not anytime soon.、Um, an EU position, I don't see that changing. And the, of course, Taiwan has increased in the profile of Taiwan has increased during the COVID 19 crisis. And it's again due to Taiwanese diplomacy also and their success in dealing with the pandemic in the early stages, particularly.、Um, so you see a lot of Mentions of Taiwan in the public debate in, in Europe and、uh, members of parliament, MEPs who are critical of China bringing in Taiwan issues more and more.、Uh, but yeah, a sort of change in a European position, particularly at the EU level, I, I don't foresee that happening anytime soon. So I think that's a good place to transition to discussion of potential obstacles in security cooperation between the US, Japan, and Europe. I think we're already picking up on you know, some of the tensions and some of the trade offs in taking joint positions on some kinds of issues. But you know, are there particular obstacles or challenges, perhaps, that、um, the both of you see in trilateral cooperation moving forward? Zach, why don't we start with you? I think that there are some challenges, and I don't know that it's Specifically about trilateral cooperation, but I think there are a lot of challenges in the, the individual bilateral relationships that are going to manifest in a trilateral setting. And, you know, we've seen this in some areas like, like technology, which we were talking about earlier, where the US and Europe just have two very different views on how to conduct technology regulation,、um, you know, what privacy standards should be, the degree to which antitrust should. Uh, limit the operation of large technology companies. I think we're 
probably we're seeing Japan be more closely aligned with both the U.S. and Europe than the U.S. and Europe are between themselves um, on a whole host of issues. So I think there's an opportunity here for Japan to play a bit of a bridge building role, not just on technology, but on on other issues as well. Um, And I, I think that's a lot of what Japan has done very effectively the last five years or so is try and find ways to help the United States and help others around the world um, come to agreements on things that do enhance the rules-based order. So I think that's the real challenge from a trilateral setting. It's it's less trying to figure out how Japan can come to agreement with the Europeans or with the Americans. It's more trying to find bridges across the transatlantic divide on on some of these tough issues. Karima, what do you think? I would definitely second the transatlantic divide as as a challenge because um, I realized in my conversations both in the US and Europe is that um, there's a a lack of understanding on the US side of why Europe is interested in the Indo-Pacific and exactly what kind of role it wants to play. Um, There's a lot of you know, there are a lot of questions around why is Europe, uh, is Europe suddenly interested in the region? It's so far away, whereas the debate in France is very different. It sees itself as a regional um, or resident power, etc. There's also a lack of understanding of the U.S. approach. You see a lot of Europeans um, have very little understanding of how the Biden administration wants to engage, what ex- exactly is the role of the Quad. There are lots of misconceptions even in policy circles around these questions. So I think that's one impediment. And the second is that there are clear limitations, again, of how much Europe can engage simply because it's so uh, preoccupied with its own neighborhood. Of course, it's sort of near neighborhood and those challenges will take primacy. So the question is, after all of these strategies are out, what next? Um, how how much can Europe actually commit? Will we see this sort of peter out in a few months? And here again, I think Japan has a role to play and countries in the region um, can hold Europeans to account because they've also played a role in shaping um, Europe's Indo-Pacific strategy. So far, India, for example, the Indian foreign minister right now is um, speaking at the EU foreign, um, foreign minister's meeting. Um, and this is to inform the strategy coming out next week. Uh, so I think the regional players holding Europe accountable would help. Um, that actually goes to the next question, which is how can you overcome the, these challenges? But I definitely think that uh, the transatlantic divide will will be a key issue because everyone says we want Europe to do more, but no one really knows what is expected and where can Europeans step in in a way that is useful? Yes, I would definitely agree with both of you. I mean, I think we see a situation where U.S.-Japan security cooperation is clearly, you know, quite uh, strong. And the question is, you know, how can the three parties work together? And I think that, you know, in this podcast, we've been discussing the host of areas where there's potential cooperation. But then as Karima was alluding to, you know, the task is really to uh, choose the things that are the priorities and make tangible progress and start moving forward beyond sort of scoping um 
cooperation opportunities. And that is happening, but um, you know, really moving forward in a tangible way is a significant challenge. Thank you, Zach and Garima. It's been an engaging conversation and it will be interesting to see how security cooperation between the US, Japan, and Europe continues to evolve in the future. And to our audience, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Out of Order. 